to Daniel chapter 9, please, and we're going to read uh, down from verse 1 to verse number 19. We'll leave the hard bit of the chapter to the end, I think. So Daniel uh, chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse number 19. This is the prayer of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them because of the trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he hath set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he hath spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayers before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thine fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And that's a reading, and that is the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9. One of the things that is always associated with Daniel, even when you listen to the stories of Daniel as a child, is that Daniel was a man of prayer daily. He prayed three times, and so on. And prayer is one of those things that we would readily associate with this man, with this man of God. And we know from the experience that we've already uh, considered together at the Bible class that prayer was one of the most important aspects of Daniel's life. 
It was so fundamental to him and to the rhythm of his life that even when he was threatened and even when he was put into a den of lions, he would choose that rather than to give up his prayers. And so that shows the priority and the value that he placed upon prayer in his life. So he won't jettison it, he won't lose it, he won't set it to one side, he won't even diminish it. It will have the same importance, the same regularity, the same priority in his life, no matter the pressure brought to bear upon him and the physical persecution he would suffer, he would not give up on prayer. Which begs the question, why do we? So as we think about this and you think about what it is in your life and mine that causes us not to pray. Hold that thought in your mind. And then think about this man and what he would endure rather than give up in prayer. It is a powerful example for us. Now the background when you come to Daniel chapter 9 is that Israel, um, as we've learned, was taken um, in a kind of threefold cycle into captivity in Babylon. Now things had moved on from that initial captivity in that, although Daniel remained in Babylon, the empire that he was subject to had changed. There'd been a change of government. There'd been a change of power. Not so much within the same structure of Babylon and the Babylonish Empire, but that had been overtaken by the Medo-Persian Empire and still Daniel remains in Babylon. And so although there had been this geopolitical change of empires which had affected all of the then known world, it hadn't actually changed much for Daniel. So Daniel remains in Babylon he remains subject to those authorities raised up by God, and he's still not home. Now, as he's in Babylon, it's evident as we read down through this chapter that Daniel is reading the letter, or he's reading the writings of Jeremiah. And as he does so, he comes across the truth that Jeremiah had written, that the captivity in Babylon that Daniel was subject to, and the people of God were subject to, would only last for 70 years. Now Daniel has worked out that the 70 years must be up pretty soon. And so although he knows that the time period is going to come to an end and he reads the word and he believes the word and by faith he holds on to that word, he was a man of faith and when he reads it, he believes it, he still doesn't have the precision within that writing to know exactly when that's going to take place. So there is some imprecision within the prophecy due to the commencement of the captivity. And so Daniel is praying in chapter 9 and he's seeking God's answer and God answers him with a shocking answer really which takes up the second part of chapter 9. But we want to look at the prayer at the beginning and learn some lessons for our prayer life. So why is it that Daniel is praying at all about this matter? Well, as we came to the end of chapter 8 last time, we discovered this, that Daniel had been given what was a very hard vision. And we took great courage in that because if we find Daniel's visions hard to understand, well, he too found them hard to understand. And he actually had an angelic messenger to come and explain them to him and after he received the explanation of that vision right at the end of chapter 8 it says this in verse 27 and I Daniel fainted and was sick certain days afterwards I rose up did the king's business and I was astonished at the vision so Daniel gets this vision Daniel gets the interpretation of this vision and Daniel is still flabbergasted he's still astounded at what that vision is communicating to him. And what we see here is Daniel's response to perplexing news from God. And that perplexing news from God produces action on the part of Daniel. 
He does something when he's in this condition of being astonished at the vision. And he turns to the word of God as he has it, and he turns to prayer. Now, it's interesting to me that Daniel has thrived throughout all his time in Babylon. We know that. And whatever kingdom it is, Daniel seems to rise to the surface. His integrity is intact, yet his career blossoms. And so he is where God would have him to be, evidently, and he's unchanged by the process. And we've looked at that, and we've looked at the necessity of taking you where God would have you be rather than where you would like to be. And to remain true to your character and integrity in that process, and not to expunge that in order to get somewhere where God would not have you be, by own means, by hook or by crook. So Daniel's where God would have him be, his integrity is intact, his testimony is good, but even although he has come unchanged through all of these experiences, we're meeting him as an old man. And it's not just that his integrity is unchanged, it's this, that he still is a man of prayer, even in his aged stage of life. Now, I came up with three reasons why Daniel might not have prayed. It seems a bit unusual, but think about it this way. Daniel has seen and been through a lot in life. He has accrued, I would judge, a tremendous amount of observational wisdom. He's seen stuff. He's done stuff. He's been places. He knows a lot of things. He knows about people. He's experienced hostility. He's experienced praise. He's really experienced all of that. And at an old age, he perhaps could have leaned back upon all of that life experience, all of that accrued natural wisdom or even spiritual wisdom, and therefore not felt the same need to go to prayer. Because after all, he's been praying for a lifetime and surely God will just give him the same answers as he always gives them. And, and Daniel's an old man. Why bother praying at that stage of life? Secondly, Daniel is also a man of great influence and position within society. So, rather than pray that God would sort things out in society, why doesn't he just sort them out himself? Because after all, there is no one in that situation like Daniel. Daniel's got authority. Daniel's got power. Daniel's got a track record. Daniel can do stuff that others can't. Daniel's been through stuff that others haven't been through. And thirdly, I thought about this. Daniel's a man of great spiritual ability and spiritual experience. He's the man who's dreamed the dreams. He's the man who's been given the interpretation of dreams that other people have dreamed. So he would have weight and standing amongst the people of God. When you bring all of that together, you have a very impressive person. You've got a man respected and esteemed by his peers. You've got a man respected and esteemed by the people of God. You've got a man who's been places, done things, accrued tremendous experience. He's got position. He's got wealth. He really is at the pinnacle of human experience, if you like. And yet this man takes himself to prayer when he is astonished. The vision. And so he turns to scripture and he takes himself to prayer. Now, of course, in doing so, he is living in a very consistent way with what the Bible teaches for all the people of God at all times. And no matter who you are or who I am, no matter how long or short we've lived for God, no matter the breadth of our life experience or the depth of our spiritual experience, the exhortations of Scripture in relation to prayer are for all of us. And that includes people like Daniel, but it also includes people like us. And you go through your New Testament and you find it repeatedly stated in different Scriptures to pray without ceasing, to pray for one another. And Paul also himself coveted the prayers of the saints of God. So we see that all of these things that might have caused Daniel not to pray actually didn't. And he does pray. He prays here 
and he prays as he looks into the word of God. Now you see this as we come now down into the section in verse number one. We're going to see first of all in relation to Daniel's prayer and in relation to our prayers that there is a stimulus to prayer here. Something takes him to prayer and it's scripture. So if you look at verse number one, it says in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, uh, sorry, verse number two, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, in their exile, it's evident that the Jews had some of the Old Testament scriptures, some of the scrolls of the Old Testament. And Daniel's reading a portion of the Old Testament that was written by a recent contemporary of his own. In fact, it may well have been prior to the captivity when he was still in Israel that he would have heard of this man, Jeremiah. I don't know if he'd heard him speak, but he would have heard of him, I would think. And he's now reading two passages that we can read. You'll find them, I think, in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah chapter 29. And in both of those passages, the information that's referenced here is detailed. And Daniel is reading along and he comes to this specific personal prophecy about the captivity which will last for 70 years. And he does the sums. And he knows the return back to the land of Israel is coming very soon. So here he is, and all that we've said about him is true. And here he is, and he's, he's reading through the prophecy of Jeremiah as he had it. And he comes upon this information within the prophecy, and he begins to work it out. And God has made a promise within that prophecy, and God always keeps his word. Daniel knows that God keeps his word. He's proved that in his life. And Daniel and his three friends were very bold in their assertions and in their life choices based upon this truth that God keeps his word. And so here's Daniel, and Daniel is believing in something that sometimes people don't believe in. They call it predictive prophecy. Daniel actually believes in the prophetic word. He believes that things in the future not yet happened have been described in the past, and God will keep his word, and these things will come to pass. He sees it, he reads it, and... It's obviously trusted by him as a reliable word for God. And so this takes him to prayer. The problem, I think, is just this. Although God has promised and keeps his word, Daniel can't be certain when the 70 years started, it's referenced, because could it be the first deportation in 605 BC it could be could it be counted from the second deportation when um, Ezekiel was taken in 597 BC maybe it's the third and final deportation when all of Israel was destroyed in 586 BC I'm not sure and I think Daniel isn't either and so Daniel in a very basic sense he's read the Bible and he doesn't understand exactly what it means so what do you do what do you do well, Daniel goes to prayer. So here's the, here's the quest. Here, here's the question. Here's the test for us here tonight at the Bible class. When you and I read the Bible and we don't understand something that it says, what do we do? Well, I think this is a great example of what to do. For we discover this, that he is moved to prayer. And his confidence in the word of God does not move him to complacency. It drives him to action. It puts him on his knees. And this scripture that he's immersed in actually energizes him in prayer. He wants to understand this. He wants to wrestle with this. He, he wants to express before God their spiritual condition, the character of God, seeking the implementation of the word of God. It's all big stuff. But start from this basic point. He's reading the word of God. And it takes him to the point of prayer. Now I find this, that if you separate the Bible from your prayers, you'll struggle with your prayers. They will fizzle out and become um, too long and they become words that you repeat or lists that you, you say. 
Here's something that I find helpful and maybe you'll find helpful. Which is to punctuate your prayers with the Bible. I like to pray with the Bible open in front of me and a passage of the Bible open in front of me. And I like to pray for it, but I like to read, like to pray, like to read, like to pray, and I divide it up like that. And punctuate my prayers with Scripture. And I find that helpful in my own prayer life. You might find it helpful in yours. But certainly, Scripture here is not disconnected to prayer. It's intimately connected to prayer. And I think when you disconnect it, it all becomes about your words and not God's word. And perhaps that's why sometimes we struggle to pray as we ought. So let's look at this uh, quickly now as we come down to verse number three. Daniel begins to pray. Notice what it says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. So first of all, Daniel's serious about this. Daniel, this is not one of the emergency prayers that you get in the Bible. This is not one of the driving prayers. It's hard to put sackcloth and ashes on when you're driving. This is, he really is, is serious. And this isn't, a, I don't think this is like the three times a day prayer that Daniel was doing. Um, I think that this is a specific moment that he set aside to seek God's face. Because it says that, I set my face unto the Lord God. He's fixing his gaze upon the Lord. So this is not transitory. This is not in motion. This is taking time, settling down, thinking about this, getting your Bible open in front of you, quieting your heart before the Lord, setting a quiet space around you, and taking yourself to the Lord. You'd set your face towards him. Now, when your phone's beeping and your things in your mind and all the rest of it, that's hard to do. But that idea of setting his face and the word seek there in the verse is the idea of continually seeking. So he sets his face, he conditions himself Godward to remove the things horizontally. He conditions himself, his mind, his heart, Godward, and... He is now going to continually, during this period of time, continually seek God. He wants to engage with God because there's something in Scripture has stimulated him into the presence of God. And he says, that, he says I'm going to do it by this method. He says, I'm going to seek, first of all, by prayer and supplication. Two words generally used to speak about someone's engagement in prayer different aspects perhaps perhaps he's asking for mercy perhaps he's requesting forgiveness or kindness but he's pleading as we see as we go down mercy he's supplicating the throne of god and when you supplicate you come as someone who is lower speaking to someone who is higher has the basic idea of, of being a supplicant and he's supplicating, and that word, the general word for prayer is he's engaging with God. He's got stuff to say, and he's got things to ask, and he's going to come with the right attitude. And he declares that by his demeanour, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, that speaks to his condition of heart. It's a very external manifestation of how he felt internally. So he is completely humbled in the presence of the Lord. He's, he is, um, he's totally abandoned to God. He's broken before God. And he manifests it in this way by fasting. That, that denial of the basic necessities of life. So when you think about that, the basic provision in Scripture for us as individuals to sustain life is really to have enough food, to have enough clothing, to have enough shelter. Three things. He denies himself of all three here symbolically. So food, clothing and shelter. Fasting to abstain from food. Sackcloth. I can imagine is uncomfortable and itchy. Sackcloth is uncomfortable clothing. Sat, you had it on when you were mourning. And ashes. I read this. The ashes were typically smeared in the face to indicate someone who'd spent the whole night by the fire. Someone who spends the whole night by the fire has no place of shelter to go to. 
And therefore is speaking about being homeless and destitute. And that was the symbolism in this. So here he is and he's saying I'm broken. He's saying I'm destitute. He's saying I don't have the basic uh, staple things of life. I'm willing to forsake them for this. I'm coming seriously into the presence of God and I'm putting myself as low as I can possibly go. That's his condition of heart as he approaches in prayer. I often reference an experience I had in a little assembly in a place called Duran in Nepal where I saw something like this um, take place. So again, I didn't have the language, so I was sitting there just observing what was going on. And then um, what would happen occasionally is men would just stand up, wouldn't say anything, and they would just stand up. And then occasionally a woman would get off her seat and she would lie flat on the ground, literally flat on the ground. Uh, as the meeting was going on. And afterwards I was asking what this meant, and the symbolism to them within their cultural context was that someone, a man would stand up to show respect, and if they particularly wanted to show respect to the Lord, they indicated that they would stand up. If a woman wanted to do that, she would lie flat down and would prostrate herself, if you like, on the ground. And what these people were doing by their um, body position was expressing within their own cultural context deep humility of heart. That's how they expressed it. And that's what Daniel's doing within his, his cultural context. He is expressing deep humility of heart. This is the way he wants to come to God as a supplicant. This is the way he wants to engage with God in prayer. With deep humility. No sense of entitlement. One writer said, when you appreciate how incredibly sinful you are, how utterly defiled you are, how you're unable to do anything acceptable to God apart from his son, Jesus Christ, then you come to him like this. And he begins to pray. Now, in direct contrast to his estimate of himself, of his inherent unworthiness, unworthiness, not worthlessness, but unworthiness to be in the presence of the Lord by his own merits. He prays in verse 4 unto the Lord my God. He makes his confession and he says, now we're now into some of these great expressions of God that Daniel is going to, to express. He says, O Lord God, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. And I'm going to pick some things out of here rather than go down it verse by verse, just to point out some of the characteristics of his prayers. And so initially, he's speaking about the greatness of God Daniel remembers as he prays to God, in contrast to himself, who God is, who he's speaking to, and what God is like. That's how he approaches him. I am this, I'm going to show that by my posture, but as I look to God and speak to God, I want just to express this, what he's saying. That I'm speaking to a God who's great and dreadful, who's a covenant-keeping, mercy-giving God to them that love and keep his commandment. God is great. God is beyond his estimate and imagination. That word awesome is appropriate in this context. Someone so high, so important, it causes Daniel to have this profound respect for God. A God who shows loving kindness steadfast, faithful love. Not like us. His love is absolutely unfailing and that is his greatness. His own love him. His own keep his commandments. Go down to verse number seven. Righteousness belongs unto thee. Righteousness, that high standard of perfection. He says, righteousness belongs to God. This is the, this is the God he's coming to. A God who never does anything wrong, who does everything right, who's not imperfect in any way or marked by evil, 
Look at verse number 9. In verse number 9 he says, To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. God's a God of compassion. He's a God of righteousness. He, he's, he's a God who is great. He's a God of compassion here. A God of pity and favour. And he reaches out to those who are, who are broken with his heart of pity and mercy. And he removes guilt and he pardons wrongdoing and he erases the memory of sinfulness. He does all of these things. This is the greatness of God that Daniel's speaking to. He's a great and dreadful God. He's a promise-keeping God. He is a righteous God. He is a God of compassion and forgiveness, even though we've rebelled against him. If you get down to verse number uh, 15, notice he says, And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people out of the land of Egypt, the mighty hand has gotten thee renown. It's at this day, we have sinned and we have, sinned and we have done wicked, wickedly. And then he goes down to verse 16. And he begins to speak about God's a God of anger. And he begins to speak about his anger. Let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. And he speaks about his sins and his iniquities and the sins and iniquities of the people. God's a God of anger and wrath. And he's thinking about the 70 years and he's thinking about his people and he's thinking about his city and he's thinking about the character of God and the greatness of God and how that impacts his people and its city. He's a God of anger and wrath. That word anger, by the way, is an is a interesting word. It actually refers to the nose. Some of you looked up from your notes. It does refer to the nose. And there's almost a cartoon picture here as someone who's so spitting mad and furious that steam's coming out their nose. And it's like air exploding. This is what the one um, definition gives. Air exploding out of their nose, ears and head. Like a cartoon, like a whistle sound almost. God is absolutely furious with sin and with wrongdoing. Sometimes we forget that about God. God gets angry at sin. And that anger is fury and wrath. And it says here, he says in verse number 16, he says, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all that are about us. I think it's interesting, we'll come to this point just in a minute, that as Daniel is thinking about the greatness, the mercy, the wrath, the righteousness of God and its impact upon Israel, Jerusalem, sin, rebellion, wickedness, Daniel takes his stand with his people. I was, I was joking and laughing about people in the media who are now taking their stand with the Ukraine. And um, they take the courageous stand of putting an Instagram post up and saying, um, I stand with Ukraine. <laughs> okay. But this is something different. Because Daniel is taking his stand with the people of God. In all their sin and rebellion. And he's going to confess sin that is national sin. He's going to confess sin and the vast majority of the prayer that flows down from verse 16, in fact, most of this prayer, has to do with the confession of sin in light of the greatness of God. I think it's interesting if you hadn't read this prayer. And had Daniel not confessed his sin in these verses, you would never have known he was a sinner, hardly, when you read through the book. There is no recorded admission or example of his own sin in the book apart from out of his own mouth here. And Daniel here is as Daniel sees himself, not as others saw him. And he's going to stand with the people of God 
And look at this, it goes right down the chapter. Look at verse 5. We have sinned and have committed iniquity. There's, there's repeated references to this sort of thing. As he doesn't say they have sinned, he doesn't say you have sinned, he says we have sinned. Corporate responsibility is accepted by Daniel. He's not stepping out and saying, look at them, look at that, they've sinned. No, as the people of God, he stands together as one and says, we have sinned. We've sinned. That's interesting. Because the Apostle Paul had a very similar way of speaking when he called himself the chief of sinners, of whom I am chief. And when you think about us in relation to our relationship with other people in our local assembly, in our community, that we serve and live for God within, then we ought to do the same. And be prepared to stand before God and say that as a group of thy people, we have sinned. Not them over there, here, some down here, we have sinned. Corporate responsibility for sin. And what does that actually mean? Well, he says there in verse number um, 16, he says, Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face, and so on. So he's going to speak about this idea of agreeing with God, which is confession, admitting to guilt, verse 5, we have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've done it wickedly, we have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgment. So he's going to speak in confession and he will agree with God about the things that they have done. We call it sins of commission and sins of omission. You see that in verse number five. The things that they had done, they sinned. They committed iniquity. They did wickedly. But then the sins of omission and there were things that they departed from my precepts and from my judgment. There were things they were commanded to do that they didn't do. He says, that's us. That's the people of God. That's why we're in captivity. That's what we did. That's what we are. That's what we are standing before the presence of God in prayer. Things like this. I noted this down. Sins of omission. What would that look like? The Bible tells us to love and we don't. Tells us to forgive and we don't. Tells us to give and we don't. Tells us to serve and we wait and sit back to be served. Sins of omission. But not only that, look at verse 6 again. And then not just a failure in terms of sins of commission and sins of omission. Things you did that were wicked. Things that you didn't do that were right. But notice a failure to listen to God in verse 6. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land said we didn't listen to the word of God or those who delivered it not hearkening is literally we went deaf we ignored them we didn't pay attention and so there was godly counsel available and they simply ignored it they didn't listen to it this is their confession this is Daniel saying this is us this is why we're in this state under divine discipline and judgment And he's laying it all before the Lord in in kind of raw confession of sin. Nothing covered, nothing soft-soaped. This is it. This is us. We did not obey. We did wrong wickedness. We didn't do right. We didn't listen when God spoke. Take these three things and ask yourself this question. Should Daniel's prayer be your prayer or my prayer? I have done wickedly. I have not done righteously. 
and I have chosen to ignore what the Bible says. That's what he's saying. And there were consequences. Verse 7 down to verse 8, he, he speaks about the shame that they were experiencing. And that's this idea of confusion of faces. Unto us confusion of faces. He says, well, here we are in captivity and we are utterly ashamed of the consequences. As a nation, they were in open shame. In captivity, literally disgraced. They've been scattered all over the world. He says that in verse 7. He says, unto as confusion of faces that this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, near, far, through all the countries. They've been scattered. And they are ashamed because of their spiritual condition. They've lost everything. And then as he goes down the rest of the chapter, which I've just referenced, he begins to get very specific and he speaks about breaking God's commands in verse 9 down to verse 15. And he gets very specific. Look at verse 10. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. He speaks about the transgression of that law and so on as you go down there. Uh, and he's saying, um, we haven't obeyed. We've broken the law of Moses in verse number 13. Calamities come upon us. We've violated the clear teachings. He's getting really specific in the areas in which they broke God's commands and dishonoured God's character. And he says in verse 14, here's the consequence. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous. So what he's saying is this, and this is his acknowledgement. God is great. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is all of these things. We are sinful and weak and failing. We stand before God and we are guilty of wickedness. We are guilty of not doing what's right. We are guilty of ignoring God's voice to us. And then he gets very specific and says we're utterly ashamed. The spiritual state we're in. We've broken X, Y, and Z. They're easily identifiable. And now, he says, that is the direct reason why we're in the state we're in. Because the Lord, he says, has visited all of this evil upon us. What a state to be in. What a place to be. I summarise the confession in this way. In verse 5, the disobedience of departing. I say I summarised, I copied someone else's summary. You'll soon realise that. Verse 5, the disobedience of departing. Verse 6, the failure to follow. Verse 7 and 8, the shame over sin. Verse 10, the refusal to respond to God. Verse 11, he recognises, or the recognition of responsibility. Verse 12, the consequence of captivity Verse 13, indifference to instruction. Verse 14, the retribution of righteousness. Verse 15, the guilt before God. And all of that's in his confession. Now, in terms of its application to us, the specifics of that confession obviously are relevant to Daniel and the people of God in that day. But the principles that underpin that as he approaches God, the honesty of that self-assessment, the honesty of describing accurately the pathway that they had come with God and why they were where they were. That bare-faced, if you like, that unadulterated, not covered up, that raw assessment of spiritual reality is where Daniel is right here. And that's somewhere you and I rarely get to. Rarely get to in life. Because it's such an uncomfortable place to go. 
to say that's why I am what I am and that's why I am where I am with God and that's why my relationships are as they are and actually getting yourself seriously before God and saying this is it. It's already known to God but this is it confessed and spread out before God. I noted four things, and I noted them this time. Four things that I think confession did for Daniel, that it should do for us. It just reminds us of a simple thing. It reminds us of who we are, and it reminds us of who God is. And sometimes we blur the lines. Secondly, it keeps us humble to the point of dependence. And that is very humble. Thirdly, it is like a, an axe taken to the tree of pride to keep it in check because it grows furiously within us. You've got to chop it down regularly. And fourthly, confession of sin aligns us correctly with God as we pray. We are in agreement with God about ourselves. We are aligned with God. We are in harmony with God about ourselves. And then in verse 16 down to verse 19, you have the last section where he begins to focus on the glory of God. And a focus on the glory of God seems to, to lift the whole thing. And it seems to cause him to be energised. We've looked at verse 6 and look at verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications. Cause Thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Now, it's this expression, for the Lord's sake. So Daniel's been speaking about himself. He's been speaking about his condition and the condition of his people. He's been speaking about the glory of God. Now he says, listen, what I want to pray and what I want to happen is for your sake. And he'll expand that. He says in verse number um, 18, he says, O oh my God, incline thy ear and hear, open thine eyes, behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. You see the, you see the change. The change is that he's now in a position where he, from a true heart, is seeking the exaltation of God, the glory of God, and he's seeking God to be glorified in his own house, amongst his own people, for his own name's sake. They were a pitiful people at this stage, really. 70 years they'd been taken away from captivity. Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, I think, by Nebuchadnezzar. And the nations all around, no doubt, looked at them as being pathetic. History. And their God to be weak and no God at all. Where is the God of Judah? Where is the God of Jerusalem? And Daniel seems motivated. Look at verse 19. O oh Lord, Lord, hear, forgive, hearken, defer not for thine own sake. O oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. It's all about God. The prayer's all about him. Do you know, I don't know if my prayers ever get to this, to be honest with you. Probably not is the true answer to that. But what, a, what an aspiration to, to have for prayer, that, that you have a raw honesty with God in relation to yourself. And by the end of your time in prayer, short or long though it may be, you, you are taken up with the glory of God, genuinely taken up, that he might be exalted and glorified in your life amongst the Lord's people. What an aspiration. What a way to end. And how that calibrates all the supplicatory prayers that you make if they're toward that end and not toward a selfish type of end. It's all about God, not about me. God's purpose is accomplished, his glory displayed. 
his character scene, all of that. One writer said, when you begin to pray about God's glory from a repentant heart, your heart will be filled with zeal. When you pray about what God is doing, what God can do, what God is like, you will find passion in your prayer. Well, here's the little answer, I think, to the question I posed at the beginning, which is just this. If Daniel was willing to be eaten alive by lions rather than stop praying, and if the reason I stop praying is because I can't be bothered, or I find my laptop more interesting, or the news cycle more appealing, or whatever. Whatever. Why is that? Probably because I've never prayed like that. I've never been where Daniel was. So I don't really know what it's like to pray like that, and to have that experience. And I don't think Daniel had that experience every day. I think this is an exceptional prayer experience of Daniel. But that exceptional prayer experience of Daniel grew out of the fact that Daniel prayed three times a day. Every day. And Daniel knew his God. And through prayer, Daniel knew himself. And therefore, when the time came, when he was supplicating the Lord, when he had a big thing he wanted to speak to God about, big issue to deal with. We've all got issues sometimes that are big. And they're overwhelming sometimes and they're past our way of just conniving and, and, and sorting things out that we like to do so much. Then perhaps we could be like Daniel and resort to this sort of experience and engage with God in a very real way in prayer. I don't know what's on your mind. You don't know what's in my mind. But I'm almost certain there'll be something in your mind Life is complicated and busy and difficult. And we all carry worries and cares and concerns. And for us, they're the biggest thing, even if they're the smallest thing. Why not take the biggest thing to God in prayer like this? Let's pray and seek God's blessing.